Hello, and welcome to the Verse Verse Podcast. My name is Justin Thomas, and I'm really excited for our journey from Genesis to Revelation a couple of chapters a week. My goal is that you would grow in your ability to understand the story that the Bible tells as a whole, as well as your ability to read the Bible for yourself. I would love to connect with you on social media. You can find us at verse slash verse, all spelled out, on Instagram or Facebook. Thanks again for tuning in. Tonight, we're going to pass over a significant threshold in the book of Ezekiel, as well as a significant mile marker in Ezekiel's ministry. And before we hit that transition, chapter 23 is relatively familiar because it's so alike chapter 16. Chapter 16 is one of the darkest descriptions we have of Judah's sin. It's done in very explicit sexual terminology as it envisions Judea as as if God uh, found them as a foundling, as a child who was left for dead, raises them and then marries them, um, and then this bride that he's he's given life and uh, and given everything to turns against him in uh, multiple adulterous relationships. Chapter 23 takes a different tact, but it's basically the same story, and it uses the same level of shocking sexual language. And so it's worth remembering that Ezekiel's goal here is to take things that his audience would see as awful, evil, disgusting, and recognize the parallel to see that these are the things they are doing, that the feelings they have are righteous and just, but they should be pointed at themselves. And so picking up here in chapter 23, we're introduced to the, um, the story or the metaphor that Ezekiel's going to use here. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, there were two women, the daughters of one mother. Okay, and so here, instead of talking about one woman who has uh, sisters later on in chapter 16, here it starts by talking about two women, and the first thing we're told here is that they are the daughter of one mother. Now, we'll come back to that, but look at verse 3. They played the whore in Egypt. They played the whore in their youth. There their breasts were pressed, and their virgin bosoms handled. Ohola was the name of the elder, and Oholibah the name of her sister. And so we're introduced to these two sisters. Their names sound similar because they are similar. They both evoke the idea of a tent. Uh, And so the idea here is uh, a tent in the midst for one, and the other one, the tent that belongs to her. And so these two sisters uh, have similar names, and their names revolve around this idea of a tent. And so we're probably to think about these names in juxtaposition of Israel's relationship with worship. And it may be that this is a reference to the tent, as in the tabernacle, as in the dwelling place of God which will make their crimes more awful as we move forward, but it is a little bit ambiguous, and it may be ambiguous because, as we've seen in other chapters, Israel became full of tents of worship for all sorts of gods, none of them uh, the God of Israel. 
The only other thing it mentions is where the story picks up here, we don't have, uh, you know, a innocent victim, a foundling child. Uh, instead, we have, uh, you know, a, a degenerate juvenile. Uh, we have two sisters who have made themselves sexually available and they're living in Egypt. And then suddenly we have a transition. And so it says here, they became mine and they bore sons and daughters. As for their names, Ohola is Samaria and Aholabah is Jerusalem. Okay. And so, whereas the grace of the first story, the one back in chapter 16, was God gives life where there is death. Here, he, he overlooks sin and brings them into a relationship with himself. And then we are also told who these two sisters are, specifically the cities of Jerusalem, the capital of Judea, as well as Samaria, the capital of the 10 northern tribes, the capital of the tribes of Israel. Continues in verse 5, Ohola, Okay, remember that's Samaria. Ohola played the whore while she was mine. She lusted after her lovers, the Assyrians, warriors clothed in purple, governors and commanders, all of them desirable young men, horsemen riding on horses. Now, notice the imagery here works, but it's not actually metaphor. The Assyrians here playing this role are military for a reason. It's not just because who can resist a man in uniform. It's because what was attractive to Samaria and what led them into idolatry was political in nature. They were looking for a strong protector. And so they turned to Assyria. Now, if you remember the history of Samaria and of the ten tribes, that's ironic because eventually Assyria will be their judgment. Assyria will be their conqueror. Um, but here, God lays out the story, so he takes them, he makes them his own, and the older of the sisters uh, begins to have this adulterous relationship. And notice here, again, it's not with one man, but with men. Uh, and to some degree, as we'll see reading through this, it's not with one nation, but with nations. It's not with one God, but with gods. In fact, notice here, verse 7, she bestowed her whorings upon them, the choicest men of Assyria, all of them, and she defiled herself with all the idols of everyone after whom she lusted. So this was no single romantic one-off, um, but a, a habit, a behavior that is stressed over and over again by broad, inclusive language. With all the men, with all the idols, with everyone, and it continues here, verse 8, she did not give up her whoring that she had begun in Egypt, for in her youth men had lain with her and had handled her virgin bosom and poured out their whoring lust upon her. And so the problem here is not one of discontinuity, but continuity, right? Whereas in the other one, there was an innocent child who owed her life uh, to God who found her and then betrayed that. Here, it's more like a second chance. You know, um, I don't think we use this saying anymore, and, uh, and it's, it's not necessarily a good one, um, but sometimes we have that saying of making a, a proper woman 
out of, I can't remember what the phrase is offhand, but it's this idea of a gracious second chance, but the second chance goes unheeded and she continues to behave uh, in her sexually adventurous ways. In fact, when it says that they poured out their whoring lust upon uh, her, uh, it is more explicit about that. It is talking about um, them um, climaxing and, and sexually using uh, these women. Verse 9, therefore, I delivered them into the hands of her lovers, into the hands of the Assyrians after whom she lusted. These uncovered her nakedness, they seized her sons and her daughters, and as for her, they killed her with the sword, and she became a byword among women when judgment had been executed on her. And so effectively, in, in the story here, it's as if the husband lets this adulterous wife go. He lets her go, and she steps into this relationship uh, with, her, um, you know, with her lover, and the lover abuses her and slaughters her and her children. Um, we've talked about before, and we see this also in the book of Romans, that one of the ways God goes about judgment, or one of the ways that sin leads to consequence in our lives is by God giving us over to what it is we actually want. And the contrast between God as husband here and the Assyrians um, isn't very explicit until the end. Uh, we could imagine this story up to these closing verses as if they're both viable candidates, if they're both upstanding men, but here we find out that there is no love or affection for this older sister, Ohola, from the Assyrians. She's just something to be used and abused and eventually killed. Now, remember, all of this story plays out historically well before the days of Ezekiel. By the time Ezekiel is deported to Babylon with his audience, uh, a hundred years have passed since this part of the story has taken place. What he really wants to address and who he's really speaking to is the one he calls Aholibah, the younger sister. And so notice verse 11, her sister Aholibah, Jerusalem, if you remember, saw this and she became even more corrupt than her sister in her lust and her whoring, which was worse than that of her sister. Okay. And so notice the, um, the escalation that comes from this. They both come from the same place. They both share the same mother. But Aholabah has a significant advantage in that she has watched the story for her older sister from beginning to end, and yet she refuses to learn the lesson. In fact, Ezekiel speaks as if her crimes are greater than her sister's crimes. Verse 12, she lusted after the Assyrians, governors and commanders, warriors clothed in full armor, horsemen riding on horses, all of them desirable young men. But what does she know about the Assyrians? They are not just soldiers, but murderers of her own sister, right? The Jews watched as the Assyrians captured and defeated their people, in fact, came to the very gates of Jerusalem, and if God hadn't intervened, intervened would have done the same thing. And yet the appeal of an alliance with Assyrian, the known Assyria, the known superpower in the world, was too appealing to Jerusalem. 
But it doesn't stop there. Verse 13, and I saw that she was defiled. They both took the same way. But she carried her whoring further. She saw men portrayed on the wall, the image of the Chaldeans portrayed in vermilion, wearing belts on their waist with flowing turbans on their head, all of them having the appearance of officers and the likeness of Babylonians whose native land was Chaldean. And so get the idea here. It's as if she's... um, it's as if she's seeing some sort of large exported good, a vase uh, or some sort of a large container, and painted on it are paintings of foreigners so far away that they've never actually met in person, but that picture fills her with longing. She wants to get to know these men. Verse 16, when she saw them, she lusted after them and sent messengers to them in Chaldea. And so another place we see the escalation of the sister is that she doesn't just respond to the advances of a nearby neighbor, but goes seeking a foreign lover in the Babylonians. And you may remember that there comes an occasion where the king of Jerusalem, uh, Hezekiah by name, entertains the Babylonians, shows them around Jerusalem, invites them in. This is what's being touched on here in the story. And so, verse 17, the Babylonians came to her into the bed of love, and they defiled her with their whoring lust. And after she was defiled by them, she turned from from them in disgust. And when she carried on her whoring so openly and flaunted her nakedness, I turned in disgust from her as I had turned in disgust from her sister." Yet she increased in her whoring, remembering the days of her youth when she played the whore in the land of Egypt and lusted after her paramours there, whose members were like those of donkeys and whose issue was like that of horses. Now the language there is idiomatic, uh, and yet it can't escape even in its idiom being explicit. The idea here is that the Egyptians are well endowed Right, like barnyard animals. And so we see here again, um, in the language of Ezekiel, this attraction is as base as it can possibly be. And again, this was a problem in Jerusalem's later history, is once Babylon becomes a power and is no longer a friend to Jerusalem but a threat, they turn to Egypt. Egypt will save them from Babylon And so it continues here, verse 21, Thus you longed for lewdness of your youth when the Egyptians handled your bosom and pressed your young breasts. Now just a side note before we continue on, remember how often in Israel's history they're encouraged not to return to Egypt, not to buy horses in Egypt, not to find support in Egypt. And so here that story is being told again, and now we get to the sentencing, we get to the conclusion. Therefore, O Aholibah, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will stir up against you your lovers, from whom you turned in disgust, and I will bring them against you from every side. The Babylonians and the Chaldeans, Pekod and Shoah and Koah and all the Assyrians with them, desirable young men, governors and commanders, all of them officers and men of renown, all of them riding on horses. And they shall come against you from the north with chariots and wagons and a host of peoples. And they shall set themselves against you on every side with buckler, uh, 
shield and helmet, and I will commit judgment to them, and they shall judge you according to their judgments. And I will direct my jealousy against you that they may deal with you in fury. They shall cut off your nose and your ears and your survivors shall fall by the sword. Notice how it's weaving in and out of literal history and, and the suitable metaphor. They shall seize your sons and your daughters and your survivors shall be devoured by fire. They shall also strip you of your clothes and take away your beautiful jewels. Thus I will put an end to your lewdness and your whoring begun in the land of Egypt so that you shall not lift up your eyes or remember Egypt anymore. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I will deliver you into hand of those whom you hate, into the hands of those from whom you turned in disgust, and they shall deal with you in hatred, and take away all the fruit of your labor and leave you naked and bare, and the nakedness of your whoring shall be uncovered, your lewdness and your whoring. You have brought this upon you, because you played the whore with the nations and defiled yourself with their idols. You have gone the way of your sister, therefore I will give her cup into your hands. And so now we get, uh, you know, a mixed metaphor, and it moves here to this idea of the cup. And throughout the prophets, the cup is a personification of judgment. It's a picture of, uh, of judgment, and the comparison is alcoholic in nature, not just any cup, but a heavily intoxicating drink. And so the drunkenness and the destructiveness that comes with drunkenness is the picture here. And he says, you watched your sister drink before you. You watched the damage it did to her life. But here, because you followed in her footsteps, verse 32, thus says the Lord God, you shall drink your sister's cup that is deep and large. You shall be laughed at and held in derision for it contains much, it's very full. You will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow cup of horror and desolation, the cup of your sister Samaria, and you shall drink it and drain it out and not shards and tear your breasts. For I have spoken, declares the Lord God. Now notice here, put yourself, if you will, in the shoes of Jerusalem. They watch as because of the northern tribe's unfaithfulness, Samaria is captured people are deported to Assyria, and they are the ones left. And you can imagine that many of them saw themselves as the faithful remnant, right? The ones who were left. They looked at that and they went, you know, it's really a shame, but they should have known better, right? But again, as he walks them through this history and goes, that's absolutely right, but how then can you defend yourselves against God's complaint when you have followed in the same footsteps, when you uh, didn't have, or when you had a greater opportunity or a greater advantage than your sister had because you saw beforehand. He continues here in verse 35, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have forgotten me and cast me behind your back, you yourself must bear the consequences of your lewdness and your whoring. And the Lord said to me, Son of man, will you judge Aholah and Aholabah? Declare to them their abominations, for they have committed adultery, and blood is on their hands. With their idols they have committed adultery, and they have even offered up to them for food the children whom they have borne me. Moreover, they have done to me, uh, they have defiled my sanctuary on the same day and profaned my Sabbaths. For when they slaughtered their children and sacrificed to their idols on the same day, they came into my sanctuary to profane it, and behold, this is what they did. 
in my house. They even sent for men to come from afar, to whom a messenger was sent, and behold, they came. From them you, or for them you bathed yourself, painted your eyes, adorned yourself with ornaments. You sat on a stately couch with a table spread before it on which you had placed my incense and my oil. The sound of a carefree multitude was with her, and with the men of common sort, drunkards were brought from the wilderness, and they put bracelets on the hands of the women and beautiful crowns on their heads. Then I said of her who was worn out by adultery, now they will continue to use her for a whore, even her, for they have gone into her as men go into a prostitute. Thus they went into Ahola and Aholabah, lewd women, but righteous men shall pass judgment on them with the sentence of adulteress and with the sentence of a woman who shed blood because they are adulteresses, their blood is on their hands. In the Old Testament law, adultery as well as murder both receive capital punishment. And so this statement here is one of justice, one of them getting what they have been after. And remember here, although we can look at the adultery and recognize we're talking here about spiritual adultery, the blood that's on their hands is not. They have murdered their own children as sacrifices to the gods. And God says, you know the law. The law is just. And he finishes here. He says, how's this going to play out? Verse 46, for thus says the Lord God, bring up a vast host again to them and make them an object of terror and a plunder. And the host shall, uh, host shall stone them and cut them down with their swords. They shall kill their sons and their daughters and burn up their houses. Thus I will put an end to lewdness in the land. And uh, that all women may take a warning and not commit lewdness as you have done. And they shall return your lewdness upon you and you shall bear the penalty for your sinful idolatry. And you shall know that I am the Lord God. Now again, this is extreme, it's explicit, it's intense, it's shocking, and that's the point. And this is the last message that is given to us while there is still time for response. Okay? And so it, it, it serves its purpose as being kind of the final attempt Ezekiel and God through Ezekiel makes to get Jerusalem's attention. But when we get to chapter 24, the judgment that is threatened comes. Look at verse 1. In the ninth year, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, write down the name of this day, this very day. The king of Babylon has laid siege to Jerusalem this very day. Okay. Now remember, Ezekiel is where? He is in Babylon. The distance is significant, hundreds of miles. And so for the message of Jerusalem is surrounded by the Babylonian army to uh, arrive is going to take days, maybe even weeks, before they hear the news. But Ezekiel knows it in advance, and he declares it in advance, and he puts it on a calendar, and he circles it, which is going to be the validation of his ministry. Okay. And then he's given uh, a role, verse 2, Son of man, write down the name of this day, the very day. The king of Babylon has laid siege to Jerusalem this very day. Side note, remember that it's an 18-month siege until Jerusalem falls it continues in verse 3, And utter a parable to the rebellious house and say to them, Thus says the Lord God. Now this next section for you is probably formatted, formatted different than the rest because it's poetic in nature. In fact, most commentators believe that it's in the format of a song. 
and maybe even a known song um, that he parodies here to make the point. Uh, the content of the song is actually really simple. It's, it's a song you would sing as you cook, right? It's a cooking song. Set on the pot, set it on, pour on water also, put in the pieces of meat, all the good pieces, the thigh and the shoulder, fill it with choice bones, take the choicest one of the flock, pile the logs under it, boil it well, seethe also the bones in it. And so the picture here is relatively neutral of, uh, of a significantly wealthy meal being prepared. Um, in this day, meat was not as common in your meals as it is in our day. Um, and so killing an animal and cooking it was something for special occasions. In fact, it may even be that the special occasion in mind here um, is sacrificial in nature. You may remember that animal sacrifice was a significant part of Jewish worship, um, and that often involved feasting. Consider, for example, back in the book of Leviticus, the fellowship offering, which was offered to God and a portion was given to God, and then the rest was shared between the offerer and his friends and family, the picture being a time of communion with God himself and enjoying that relationship. So when the song is sung here, as Ezekiel is walking down the street, it's, it's relatively neutral in its meaning. It might even be attractive. In fact, maybe it has the appeal of either, uh, either drawing people to a feast as kind of a melodic invitation, uh, or it could be a very positive thing, a sacrifices to God or something that are well-received and holy. And even as we saw in the last chapter, something Jerusalem continued to offer even while they worshiped other gods. But now the interpretation is given in verse six. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, woe to the bloody city, to the pot whose corrosion is, is in it and whose corrosion has not gone out of it. Take it out piece after piece without making any choice. And so the idea here is that the pot is set up here and the pieces have, have gone in, but it's not for a delicious stew. Uh, it's actually been so significantly scalded to the pot that the pot is ruined. Okay? In fact, the idea here uh, is one of defilement. Um, it's as if the animal that went into this pot, uh, you know, was, was dyed and rotten. And now the pot is both ceremonially and hygienically uh, unclean. And so it continues here and it starts to tell us what's really going on for the blood. Verse 7, she has shed in her midst. She put on the bare rock. She did not pour it out on the ground to cover it with dust. Now again, Ezekiel is a Levitical priest and he's using Levitical practice to explain here um, when Jews ate of animals or when they sacrificed them, they always let the blood drain out first. And God explains they're not to eat meat with the blood in it because the blood is the issue of life uh, and it belongs to God alone. And so he says your behavior in the city is as if you just poured the blood out everywhere. You're not keeping um, the Levitical law. And so he says, verse 9, Therefore thus uh, says the Lord God, Woe to the bloody city. I will also make the pile great. Heap on the logs, kindle the fire, boil the meat well, mix in the spices, and let the bones be burned up. Okay, suddenly... We have too hot 
of a fire, right? Then set it empty upon the coals that it may become hot and its copper may burn, that its uncleanness may be melted in it and its corrosion consumed, okay? It, this is like the, the cleaning mode on your oven, right? Where you crank it all the way past 500 degrees and it's not for cooking, it's to cleanse it of the things that have stuck to the inside of the oven. And so he says, you are a pot. But what's inside the pot is corruption, it's uncleanness, and I'm going to burn it all away. Verse 12, she has wearied herself with toil. Its abundant corrosion does not go out of it into the fire with its corrosion. Okay, so no amount of elbow grease is going to remove this stain. It's just the fire. On account of your unclean lewdness, because I would have cleansed you and you were not cleansed from your uncleanness, you shall not be cleansed any more till I have satisfied my fury upon you. In other words, God says, I've held out my hand for so long. I've made an appeal for so long. I've offered cleansing, but because you've rejected it and because now, you know, your sin is baked on, it's going to have to be cooked out. It's time for final and total judgment. Verse 14, I am the Lord. I have spoken it shall come to pass, I will do it, I will not go back, I will not spare, I will not relent. Do you see how the verbs are just heaped on there? How do you know that this is inescapable? Let's go down the list. Because God is God. Because he has said so. Because it's going to happen. Because he's determined to do it. Because there's no turning around. Because he's not going to spare or relent. According to your ways and your deeds, you will be judged, declares the Lord God. So here the announcement is made. It's happening today, and it is, you know, a pot in the fire, and it's not about a simple discipline or a cleansing, but the total destruction of Jerusalem. And then there's another part. On the same day, verse 15, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, behold... I'm about to take the delight of your eyes away from you at a stroke. Yet you shall not mourn or weep, nor shall your tears run down. Sigh, but not aloud. Make no mourning for the dead. Bind on your turban and put your shoes on your feet. Do not cover your lips, nor eat the bread of men. So I spoke to the people in the morning, and at evening my wife died. And on the next morning I did as I was commanded. So he, I mean, this is, this is a difficult reality. When it says there, so I spoke to the people in the morning, it means, so that message we just read about the pot, he went to work. God says, here's your business for the day. Know that I'm going to take the wife, or life of your wife. And then he has to go out and give the message. And when he comes home, his wife is dead. And God says, I'm going to take your wife from you and you're not going to mourn. Now, I want to be really clear here. God doesn't limit Ezekiel from sadness or from grief, but from public expressions of it. That's what it means when it says, sigh but quietly to yourself. That's what it means when it says, eat no bread with others, uh, or when it says, make no mourning for the dead. In traditional Middle Eastern societies, uh, mourning is a public event, and it has a very public display. Uh, even in the days of Jesus, it was still common to hire professional mourners 
who would walk with your procession and weep. We have our own ways to do this, right? We have a hearse and we have the black cars that the families pass through. There are things that mark our processions, um, but theirs were larger, bigger manifestations of the true and personal pains. That's what he's restricted from. Now we've seen Ezekiel have to play the part many times, uh, but this is probably his most difficult assignment. In fact, just, just think about the fact that up to this point, we didn't know Ezekiel had a wife. Go back over the last seven years of Ezekiel's ministry where he's not allowed to speak and is completely mute unless God loosens his tongue, uh, where he's not allowed to leave his house unless God sends him on an assignment, where for a period of over a year and a couple of months, he has to lay outside and make his meals in publicly. Uh, publicly. You can imagine his wife is a significant part of this, the only one who understands, the only one who knows, his great supporter, uh, and God takes her life to make uh, Ezekiel a sign of what's to come. Now, it truly is one of the most difficult things of playing the role of prophet, which is that you cannot do it safely from a distance. You always enter into the pain and suffering and difficulty of those that you speak to. And that's what happens with Ezekiel here. As we'll see, he won't be the only one whose wife dies. He is becoming like the people so that he can make a point here. And notice, everybody notices in the morning, apparently, his wife is quietly buried and Ezekiel doesn't participate. He doesn't plan a funeral. He just goes about his day. In verse 19, the people said to me, will you not tell us what these things mean for us that you are acting thus? So they know, because everything Ezekiel does has a meaning. And so they go, all right, you're behaving differently because it means something. What is this about? In verse 20, then I said to them, the word of the Lord came to me, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord, God, behold, I will profane my sanctuary, the pride of your power, the delight of your eyes, and the yearning of your soul. Do you see the parallel language there? And so for Ezekiel, these things were his bride. For Jerusalem as a whole, for Judah as a whole, for the Jews as a whole, it was the temple. And he says, he says I'm going to take that as well as, it says here, your sons and your daughters, um, uh, hold on, I want to start again. Behold, I will profane my sanctuary, the pride of your power, the delight of your eyes, and the yearning of your soul, and your sons and your daughters whom you left behind shall fall by the sword. Those who are still in Jerusalem, he's talking about here. And they says, and you shall do as I've done. You shall not cover your lip, nor eat the bread of men. Your turban shall be on your head and your shoes on your feet. You shall not mourn or weep, but you shall rot away in your iniquities and groan to one another. Why won't they mourn for the destruction of Jerusalem? Well, in Jerusalem, it will be because they've got to go. It's because they've got to put on their shoes and their turbans and pack their bag and leave, and there's no time for mourning. But here he's talking to the Babylonians, so why is it that they wouldn't mourn Jerusalem? And it has to be because of the shock. 
It has to be that basically, in the same way, um, take this idea of professional mourning. Uh, for us, again, that usually involves making use of a funeral parlor. But what do you do when there's a devastation so significant that the funeral par parlors are all full for years, right? They're just booked up. That's the idea here is that the mourning is so great and so overwhelming, there's no way to actually, you know, follow the customs and do these things. It's going to overwhelm. Uh, Jeremiah puts it this way. He says, you're going to have to reach out to other nations and borrow their mourners. Your, your local market of professional mourners isn't large enough for what's about to happen. Ezekiel uh, suggests the same thing. In fact, notice it continues here, verse 24, Thus shall Ezekiel be to you a sign, according to all that he has done, you shall do. When this comes, then you will know that I am the Lord God. Okay, before we read these closing verses, let's put some things together here. Okay. All of the messages leading up to this point have been it's coming, it's coming, and now it's here, right? All the message has been repent, turn around, there's still time, and now it's no longer that's the case. Um, here, uh, here is judgment, here is mourning. And the question naturally to ask is, is this the end of Israel? Is this the end of Jerusalem? Is this the end of God's relationship with his people? And as we've talked about before, Ezekiel functions as a sign to the people of Israel. And not just in the places where we've seen him, where he lays on one side and sieges Jerusalem, uh, or here where he doesn't get a chance to mourn his wife, but in the broad contours of the book, he's also a sign of hope. And so just as in the beginning he was one as though he was dead, and then the Spirit entered him so he could stand up, again we see Sudden hope, verse 25, as for you, son of man, surely on the day when I take from them their stronghold, their joy and glory, the delight of their eyes and their soul's desire, and also their sons and daughters, on that day a fugitive will come to you and report to you the news. On that day your mouth will be opened to the fugitive, and you shall speak and be no longer mute. So you will be assigned to them, and they will know that I am the Lord. So notice what he says here. Just as, uh, just as was promised all the way back, there's a reminder here that when, when the curtain falls on Jerusalem, when the siege is over and the destruction happens, then this seven-year-long disciplinary action where, where he was bound to his house and where his mouth was bound and he couldn't speak of his own will, that's all going to come to an end. But why? What does it mean? Is this just a consolation prize? Hey, I know that I took your wife, but I'm going to give you back your speech. If you remember, there's two things that go into Ezekiel no longer being able to speak. Uh, the first is his own resistance and unwillingness. It's a, uh, a disciplinary action uh, because he refuses to speak, and God basically says, so be it. But the other reason is because God, uh, or God illustrates in chapter 3, and he basically says, now you will not be able to intercede for the people. But now the possibility of intercession opens. 
Here we're told that all of Jerusalem, all of the Jews as a total, they're going to lose their voice and not even be able to mourn. But Ezekiel, the prototype of where God's doing, as soon as judgment falls, his speech comes back. In fact, this is fascinating. But now that this is in place, the whole posture of the book shifts. Starting with chapter 25, all the way into the mid-30s, we begin messages of hope. And that's all it took to get there. Right? The way the book is organized, it's turn around, repent, there's nothing but judgment coming, and then as soon as the judgment falls, God says, okay, now let's talk about what's next. And it's about restoration. It's about positive. Ezekiel was disciplined, and now the discipline is over. Jerusalem's discipline, the day that it ends, God's moving on to the next stage, moving towards the restoration. And so what we have in the beginning that makes up the beginning of the messages of hope is actually more judgment, but there's a significant difference. This judgment is on those who mocked, who persecuted, who taunted, who celebrated the destruction of Jerusalem. And so the reason why these messages are messages of hope, and, and remember, uh, we have no reason to believe that any of these prophecies against these nations around Israel, Ezekiel delivered to them. They're about these nations, they're spoken to these nations, but their real audience is Jerusalem. And so it becomes a, a sign of God setting things right. And so... Let's just jump right in here to chapter 25. Now, we've seen a large section like this in the book of Jeremiah. Um, we call it the, the judgment of the nations. There's one in the book of Isaiah as well. It's, it's usually a part of the cadence of the way these books work. And so we're not going to spend a lot of time here. Um, but I, I want you to notice the cadence or the pattern, if you will. And then I want you to notice just what places are on the list. So the first one here is Ammon. Now, last week we talked about uh, a sign that Ezekiel performs where he creates a crossroad sign. One leads to Ammon, one leads to Jerusalem. And he's to act out as if he was King Nebuchadnezzar, determining through signs and portents, through entrails and the throwing of arrows and all these things, which way to go. And God says, I'm going to turn those elements to lead him to Jerusalem. And then there's just an aside, and he says, but don't think, Ammon, that you're getting off the hook. And so now it returns to the Ammonites, um, and they're the first on the list. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, set your face towards the Ammonites and prophesy against them. Say to the Ammonites, hear the word of the Lord God, thus says the Lord God, because you said, aha, over my sanctuary when it was profaned, and over the land of Israel when it was made desolate, and over the house of Judah when they went into exile, therefore behold... I'm handing you over to the people of the east for possession, and they shall set their encampments among you and make their dwellings in your midst. So notice, notice he says, you're going to receive the same judgment, and the reason that's given here is because they took pleasure in the destruction upon Judah. The Germans actually have a word for this. Because it's become a significant part of our Facebook world, you may have heard it, it's schadenfreude. Okay. Schadenfreude is to take pleasure in the pain of someone else. And we'll see that that's a running theme throughout these ideas. But ultimately, it's short-sighted for two reasons. One, because they mistake this temporary 
happening to Jerusalem as a total invalidation, not just of the Jews, but of the God of the Jews. And that is a mistake. And two, the second mistake they make is not realizing that they are deserving of and receiving the same punishment. Jesus warns us about judging other people in the same language. He says, be careful of the measure which you judge other people, for that measure will be your measurement. And so he continues here, and he, uh, he says uh, he's going to hand them over to Babylon as well. He finishes the tale into verse 4 here. They shall eat your fruit. They shall drink your milk. I'll make Rabbah a pasture for camels and Ammon a fold for flocks. Then you will know that I am the Lord. We've seen that re- phrase repeated over and over again. Then you will know that I am the Lord. But notice it in this context. The mistake that Ammon is making is that the God of Israel is not strong, is not real. And he says, well, how about if that God says, yes, I judge Jerusalem, but I'm also going to judge you, right? And it continues here, verse 6, For thus says the Lord God, because you have clapped your hands and stamped your feet and rejoiced with all the malice within your soul against the land of Israel, therefore, behold, I've stretched out my hand against you, and I will hand you over as plunder to the nations, and I will cut you off from the peoples and make you perish out of the countries. I will destroy you. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Then he moves on to Moab and Seir. Now, if we had a map in front of us and we were looking at Israel, we're dealing with Israel's immediate neighbors, and Ezekiel here is moving um, counterclockwise around Israel. Okay, And so first we start with the Ammonites uh, in the northeast, Okay. And then we move to Moab and Seir, that would be directly east. Okay, If you were standing on the shore of the Dead Sea with Jerusalem at your back, the coast of the Dead Sea on the other side is Moab. Today it's Jordan. Okay. Thus says the Lord God, because Moab and Seir said, Behold, the house of Judah is like all the other nations. See again, the same mistake. I knew that the God they said was the God of all nations wasn't a God at all. I knew they were just like others. Now, actually, there's truth in what they're saying, right? Ezekiel's great complaint about Judah is that they're behaving as if they were just like the other nations. And he says, you want to be just like the other nations? So be it. But the words here are, you know, a truth wrapped up in a lie. Uh, they have, they understand one part, but not the full. And so verse 9, therefore, I will lay open the flank of Moab, from the cities, from its cities on the frontier, the glory of the country, Beth Jeshemoth, Balmaon, and Kirithaim. I will give it along with the Ammonites to the people of the east as a possession, that the Ammonites may be remembered no more among the nations, and I will execute judgments upon Moab, and they will know that I am the Lord. And then we move to the southeast, to the Edomites. Now remember, the Edomites are not merely neighbors, but actually Uh, extended relatives to the Jews. Whereas the Jews come through Jacob, Jacob's older brother Esau produces the Edomites. Okay, Um, But they actually respond in the same way. Even with those distant family ties, look at verse 12, thus says the Lord God, because Edom acted revengefully against the house of Judah and is grievously offended in taking vengeance on them. Now that's a stronger criticism. It's not that they take pleasure in the destruction of the Jews. It's that they take advantage 
of the destruction of the Jews. And we read more about this in the minor prophet Obadiah, which is devoted to the Edomites. Obed, Edom, Obadiah and the Edomites. And so if you look at Obadiah, it kind of expands on this, um, on this criticism. And here's what it says. It says, verse 10, because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lot for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. In other words, when that passage opens, it looks like at the very least, they've bought Babylonian merchandise, right? And the big foam fingers, and they're sitting on the sidelines and cheering. But they actually begin to participate they go, actually, there's not enough soldiers here to loot all of Jerusalem. We can get in on this action. And they come in and they do the looting. And not only that, but they realize a good way to get into Babylon's favor is to head off those who are fleeing from the city and stop them so that the Babylonians can catch up with them. They are participants in the fall of Jerusalem. And that is short-sighted for two reasons. One, because Babylon has this whole territory under its plans to wipe out, and they're not going to get away from that. But more significantly, um, God holds them into account because they deny their brotherly relationship. All the other nations are truly foreigners, but this is, according to Obadiah, Jacob, your brother, that you're looting and taking advantage of. It's as if uh, you, know, you lived across the street from your extended family and you saw a thief breaking into their house and you went, what a great idea, and went into the living room and took the TV for yourself. It doesn't make any sense. It is so uh, selfish and so hateful and so against this relationship. Side note, God holds Judea and Israel as a whole to the same thing and maintains that they need to treat the Edomites as brothers, okay? But like Esau and Jacob in the beginning, that, that's a difficult proposition. Verse 14, I will lay my vengeance upon Edom by the hand of my people Israel, and they shall do in Edom according to my anger and according to my wrath, and they shall know my vengeance, declares the Lord God. Now notice there, he says the vengeance here is not merely going to be the Babylonians, but Israel. And the thing that's worth remembering is that the, the Edomites and Israel as a whole uh, have a constant border, uh, border uh, scuffle. Okay? And so basically the idea here is I still have plans for Israel and when I do, they're going to step into your land and I'm going to let them have it. Okay? And then it moves to the west. Okay, So we've gone from the northeast to the east to the southeast and now to the Philistines to the west of Israel, the coastal dwellers. Okay. Thus says the Lord God, because the Philistines acted revengefully and took vengeance with malice of soul to destroy in never-ending enmity. Uh, the Philistines, by the way, win the award for being the most consistent and difficult enemy of Israel. 
So it says here they had never-ending enmity. It wasn't just a one-day thing. Therefore, verse 6, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I'll stretch out my hand against the Philistines, and I'll cut off the Cherethites and destroy the rest of the seacoast. I will execute great vengeance on them with wrathful rebukes. Then they will know that I am the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon them. And so just in summary here, God basically says, I'm going to do this in a way uh, where my honor and my ability and the reality of who I am stays intact. And so he doesn't just judge Israel, but Israel's neighbors. And it's, again, for a lot of the same reasons. Um, God is consistent in his judgment. Now, what happens next Chapters 26, 27, 28 are also a judgment um, in this cadence of judgment on nations, but they're all devoted to a single group of people, Tyre. Uh, Tyre is actually a city. It's a capital city. What we're really talking about here is the Phoenicians, okay? And the Phoenicians had their capital in Tyre, uh, but they were a sea-bearing people, and they had colonies all over the Mediterranean, Okay. And so here he moves on uh, to Tyre and the Phoenicians. Um, and we'll see here the judgment is a little bit different. They're not one of uh, Israel's immediate na neighbors. Um, they're actually an island within the Mediterranean. Um, uh, but, but there is also judgment that's going to happen here. But here's the interesting thing. Not only does it take three chapters to lay out the judgment of Tyre, but chapter 26, chapter 27, and 28 all view it from a different view. Okay? And so chapter 26 is just a straight-out, outright sentencing of God judgment, like we've seen consistently. Chapter 27 is a lament, and it doesn't mention uh, crimes for Tyre. It doesn't mention God at all. There's no divine viewpoint. It's just people watching the disaster and feeling bad about it because they loved Tyre and because Tyre was important to them. Okay? And so it's a lament. And uh, although it might be uh, a little bit um, satirical, it's written from the perspective of people who really will weep at the destruction of Tyre. And then the final one in chapter 28 uh, takes us into the spiritual realm as a whole and kind of pulls back the curtain and shows that there's a cosmic reality to what's going on to Tyre. Um, and so that gives us together, one, two, three, a three-dimensional view of what's going on. Um, let's just move through them, uh, starting in chapter 26, verse 1. In the eleventh year, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. Okay, so this is, this is after Jerusalem has been destroyed. Remember, we were in the 10th year. It was a year and a half siege. So now after all of that's happened, verse 2. Son of man, because Tyre said concerning Jerusalem, Aha, the gate of the peoples is broken. It swung open to me. I shall be replenished now that she is laid waste. Here's the difference in Tyre's approach. They take joy in the destruction of Jerusalem because they're a primary competitor in the global market. That's the idea here of, uh, of the gates being broken. Okay? It's the marketplace that's been destroyed. Uh, and so they recognize here there is a great opportunity to be the sole supplier, to have a monopoly on the marketing front. Remember, going all the way back to Solomon, Solomon gets heavily involved in trade. Spices from here 
and gold from there and the cedars of Lebanon and boats out on the water. And so Israel maintains that game, uh, but now Tyre has nobody to compete with because Jerusalem has fallen. So it's not strictly animosity here, it's ambition. Verse 3, therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I'm against you, O Tyre, and I will bring up many nations against you as the sea brings up its waves. I want you to notice throughout these chapters that all of the imagery that's used for this judgment is in the language of the Phoenicians. Like I told you, they're a seafaring people. All of their uh, industry they do along the ocean. They're not really afraid of soldiers on horses. In fact, Later, and we'll deal with this in another book of the Bible, but later, after they're kind of restored, the final place they get wiped out is during the conquering of Alexander the Great. And he has a real significant problem getting his land-born army to conquer an island people. And so what he does is he starts to fill in the water between the mainland and the island with dirt and builds a road to the city so that they can actually attack it their usual way. And he's so successful at this that Tyre is no longer an island. It's an isthmus. It's a peninsula that sticks out now because that road was solid enough that instead of corroding with time, it actually grew. But that's for another book. We'll deal with that prophecy another time. Um, But here he says, all right, you want to think about destruction? How about a tidal wave? Do you understand a tidal wave? Okay. And so he continues here and he says here, um, verse 4, They shall destroy the walls of Tyre and break down their towers, and I will scrape her soil from her and make her a bare rock. Okay. It's just this island, and he says it's as if God just reaches his arm and just scrapes it right off the island is the idea here. Okay. Verse 5, She shall be in the midst of the sea a place for the spreading of nets. For I have spoken, declares the Lord God, and she will become a plunder of nations. She's going to be so bare, it'll be a good place to dry the nets of the local fishermen, right? Uh, And he says, and she shall become plunder for the nations, and her daughters on the mainland, all of these little marketing colonies, uh, shall be killed by the sword, and then they will know that I am the Lord. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I'll bring against Tyre from the north Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. King of kings, with horses and chariots, with horsemen and a host of many soldiers. Again, their army is a navy. Their fortresses are across the sea. They've never felt threatened by Babylon. They didn't think, and on top of that, as we'll see pretty soon, they're tremendously wealthy and also important. Okay? You remember in 2008 when Banks claimed that they were too big to fail? That was Tyre's security. They were too essential to too many people for anyone to threaten their power. They didn't need big armies. They had big bank accounts. Okay, uh, and so here he says, actually, it's going to be Nebuchadnezzar. He's going to happen. Verse eight: He will kill with the sword your daughters on the mainland. He'll set up the siege wall against you and throw up a mound against you and raise a roof of shields against you. He will direct the shock of his battering rams against your walls with his axes. He will break down your towers. His horses will be so many that their dust will cover you. Your walls will shake at the noise of the horsemen and the wagons and the chariots when he enters your gates as men enter a city that's been breached. With the hoofs of his horses, he will trample all your streets. He will kill your people with the sword and your mighty pillars will fall to the ground. They will plunder your riches 
and loot your merchandise. They'll break down your walls and destroy your pleasant houses. Your stones and your timber and your soil, they'll cast into the midst of the water. Now notice he's being tremendously detailed here. And again, I think the reason why we find passages like this in the prophets is because it's so unbelievable. And so Ezekiel effectively here doubles down and says, I'm going to walk you through every step of what's going to happen because it's real. Verse 13, I'll stop the music of your songs and the sound of your lyres shall be heard no more. I'll make you a bare rock. You should be a place for the spreading of nets. You shall never be rebuilt for I am the Lord. I have spoken, declares the Lord God. Now the fullness of that judgment, like I said, doesn't happen under Nebuchadnezzar, but ultimately under Alexander. Um, and so we have the Babylonians and then the Persians and then the Greeks. Um, verse 15, thus says the Lord God to Tyre, will not the coastlands shake at the sound of your fall when the wounded groan when the slaughter is made in your midst then all the princes of the sea will step down from their thrones and remove their robes and strip off their embroidered garments they will clothe themselves with trembling they will sit on the ground and tremble every moment and be appalled at you right all of the little players in the market will see you know the big success all crumble and they'll basically take a day off from work. They'll you know, strip out of their suits uh, and instead put on what it calls here the clothing of trembling, right? Uh, just fear is all that will be left and they'll be appalled. Verse 17, they will raise a lamentation over you and say, how you have perished, you who were inhabited from the seas. O city renowned who was mighty on the sea, she and her inhabitants imposed their terror on all inhabitants. Now the coastlands tremble on the day of your fall, and the coastlands that are on the sea are dismayed at your passing. For thus says the Lord God, when I make you a city laid waste, like the cities that are not inhabited, when I bring up the deep over you and the great waters cover you, then I will make you go down with those who go down to the pit. To the people of old, I will make you to dwell in the world below, among the ruins from of old, with those who go down to the pit so that you will not be inhabited, but I will set beauty in the land of the living. Let me just summarize what he basically says here. He says, they're going to throw you a funeral because there will be no recovery, right? And so that's this lamentation. It's the death of Tyre, not just a difficult season. And he pictures them as if it's a person who's going to go down to the abode of the dead. No longer among the land of the living will Tyre be. He says, verse 21, I'll bring you to a dreadful end and you shall be no more. Though you be sought for, you will never be found again, declares the Lord God. Okay, now in chapter 27, we take that little lamentation we saw and we do it big and full and extensive. Um, but again, I want you to notice here that it's not going to focus on, on the judgment. This isn't told from the victims of Tyre or from the judgment of the heavens, it's told from the lamenters, those who lose out, those who the death of Tyre costs, um, those who now question their way in life because of the destruction of Tyre. Chapter 27, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to me, now you, son of man, raise a lamentation over Tyre and say to the Tyre who dwells at the entrance to the sea, merchants of people to many coastlands, thus says the Lord God, O Tyre, you have said, I am perfect in beauty. Your borders are in the heart of the seas. Your builders made perfect your beauty. 
They made all your planks of fir trees from center. They took cedars from Lebanon to make a mast from you. Of oaks of Bashan, they made your oars. They made your decks of pines from the coast of Cyprus, inlaid with ivory. What's the point here? It pictures Tyre as one of their ships, and it's perfectly built, right? They source everything from the best that's offering. They know the difference, because they're skilled sailors, between the type of wood that makes an oar and the type of wood you need for a mast, and they send out for the right things, right? In fact, notice this, verse 7, of fine embroidered linen from Egypt was your sail, serving as your banner. Blue and purple from the coast of Elisha was your awning. Both blue and purple are royal colors, and just like gold is kind of valuable, not just because it's shiny, but because it's scarce, blue and purple dye comes from incredibly rare sources. The idea of making an entire sail in blue and purple you know, whereas usually you just make a robe for a king, it's an, in, it's an expression of opulence. Verse 8, the inhabitants of Sidon and Arvad were your towers. Your skilled men, O Tyre, were in you. They were your pilots. The elders of Gabal and her skilled men were in you, caulking your seams. All the ships of the sea with their mariners within you to barter for your wares. And so he sees the whole marketplace here as a beautifully adorned, perfectly functioning ship that's well-staffed, right? He continues here in verse 10, Persia and Lud and Put were in your army as your men of war. They hung shields and a helmet in you. They gave you splendor. Think of uh, Viking ships with the shields hanging on the outside, right? They gave you splendor. Verse 11, men of Arvad and Helek were on your walls all around, and men of Gamad were in your towers. They hung your shields on your wall all around. They made perfect your beauty. In other words, it was a metropolitan reality. People from all over the world were invested in Tyre, were participants in their market. Okay. Tarshish did business with you because of your great wealth of every kind. Tarshish is modern-day Spain. It's the complete other end of the Mediterranean, and in the Bible usually serves for being effectively the end of the map. Okay, and so here, their, their empire is not just deep, but wide. Uh, and then we have the things that they traded in, silver, iron, tin, and lead they exchanged for your wares. Javan, Tubal, Meshech traded with you. They exchanged human beings and vessels of bronze for your merchandise. From Beth Togma, they exchanged horses, war horses and mules for your wares. The men of Dadan traded with you. Many coastlands were your own special markets. They bought you in payment, ivory tusks and ebony. Syria did business with you because of your abundant goods. They exchanged for your wares emeralds, purple, embroidered work, fine linen, coral, and ruby. Judah and the land of Israel traded with you. They exchanged your merchandise, wheat of minneth, meal, honey, oil, and balm. Damascus did business with you for your abundant goods because of your great wealth of every kind, right? They'd become so significant again to the market. Whoever you wanted the goods from, you just went to Tyre. They were the middleman for this whole thing. Notice here it goes on, it says, uh, great wealth of every kind, wine of Helban, wool of Sehar, and casks of wine. From Uzal they exchanged for your wares, wrought iron, cassia, and calamus were battered for your merchandise. Dadan traded you with you in saddle clothes for riding. Arabia and all the princes of Kedar with, were with your favorite dealers in lambs and rams and goats. In these they did business with you. The traders of Sheba and Rama traded with you. They exchanged for your wares the best of all kinds of spices and precious stones and gold. Now clearly here it's laying it on a little bit thick. 
In fact, remember, the whole tone of this is it's glorifying, right? Tyre here is being upheld as being the most successful trading empire around, filled with wealth, again, essential to the world economy. Um, and it's not being uh, teasing or satirical. And so we have to go, what is it that Ezekiel is doing? And we'll save that for a minute, but let's continue here. Um, verse 23, Haran, Cana, Eden, traders of Sheba, Asher, and Chilmad traded with you. In your market, these traded with you in choice garments, in clothes of blue and embroidered work, and all the carpets of colored material bound with cords and made secure. The ships of Tarshish, remember Spain, traveled for you with your merchandise, so you were filled and heavy laden in the hearts of the sea. Okay. So here is everything they're doing, and remember he basically said, you're a boat, and he's described everything, and now all the wealth that it's carrying, uh, but its fate is like that of the Titanic. Verse 26, your rowers have brought you out into the high seas. The east wind has wrecked you in the heart of the seas. Your riches, your wares, your merchandise, your mariners, your pilots, your calkers, your dealers in merchandise, all your men of war who are in you with all your crew that's in your midst sink into the heart of the seas on the day of your fall. At the sound of the cry of your pilots, the countryside shakes down from their ships. Come, all who handle the oar, the mariners and all the pilots of the sea, stand on the land and shout aloud over you and cry out bitterly. Why? Because their entire wealth is sinking to the bottom of the ocean right in front of them. They cast dust on their heads and wallow in ashes. They make themselves bald for you and put on sackcloth on their waist. And they weep over you in bitterness of soul with bitter mourning. In their wailing, they raise a lamentation for you and a lamentation over you. Who is like Tyre? Like one destroyed in the midst of the sea, when your wares come from the seas, you satisfied many people with your abundant wealth and your merchandise. You enriched the kings of the earth. Now you are wrecked by the seas and the depths of the water. Your merchandise and all your crew in the midst have sunk with you. All the inhabitants of the coastland are appalled at you. The hair of the king bristles with horror. Their faces are convulsed. The merchants among the people hiss at you. You have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever. Now, when you look at other laments in the Bible, and again, I would point you to the lament that David, uh, David gives over the death of Jonathan and Saul. It's always a contrasting of the glory with the final end of, right? The, the horror of this is one of distance. And so a lament begins by painting very high so that the fall is described as being tremendously low. Whereas with the other nations, their danger to Israel, their danger to even Ezekiel's audience, those living in Babylon, was through their direct and violent animosity. The danger of Tyre was different. It was enticement. It was temptation. It was attractive, right? Uh, and, and I think we understand this because this is the difference uh, between the dangers we face in our own lives um, from those idols that drive us through fear, like, uh, um, you know, real enemy, and like wealth today, draw us away from God, not, uh, n not through anything but seduction. 
So why then is the lament so valuable here? And it must be valuable. Not only because that's clearly Ezekiel's intention here, uh, but also John resonates with this intention so much, he basically takes this entire chapter and he repeats it about the Rome of Revelation. If you read it, he, he starts talking about the, the ships of Tarshish and Tyre, and he repeats the whole thing. He takes all the imagery and he moves it forward because he wants to say the same thing. One of the threats of, uh, of uh, you know, Babylon in the book of Revelation is the violent attack, but another is the attractive appeal. Okay. And so this lament serves the value of helping us to recognize how... Uh, how light, how unlasting, how temporary, how, you know, vapid this is. You know, we, we have that, that uh, proverb, don't put all your eggs in one basket. But Jesus says about wealth that the problem with wealth is not that we shouldn't have an investor's mindset but that when we make wealth our end-all and be-all, we're bad investors. He says, why do you invest in things that moths can destroy and thieves can steal and rust will corrupt? He says, instead, if you want real treasure, lay it up in heaven. The idea of this lament and what makes it valuable, and one of the things laments do is they help us to see the big picture so that the uh, the the disappearing attractiveness that comes with sin, uh, the, you know, the bait without the hook. It helps us to see beyond those things, and that's the purpose of this lament. Now, it's true, this destruction is going to happen, and people will really do these things, but it's also a recognition of the fact that Tyre was not an eternal kingdom. It was not the solver of all the world's problems. It was not too big to fail. So this brings us to the, uh, the final viewpoint here. We start one more time, uh, and this time it looks at, uh, at Tyre personified in its leadership, the Prince of Tyre. And this is something we see in other places, but I want you to notice here, this gets into motive. And as it does so, it starts to cast this not in strictly and somewhat neutral economic terms. Like, outside of the fact that one of the things that he traffics in is human lives, in other words, slaves, not much in this list is really evil or wicked in and of itself until we get to this chapter. But as we do so, we also, like I said, start to see a cosmic significance. So let's just close out this chapter before we finish tonight. Chapter 28. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, thus says the Lord God, because your heart is proud and you have said, I am a God. I sit in the seat of gods in the heart of the seas. Yet you're but a man and not God, though you make your heart like the heart of a God. You are indeed wiser than Daniel. No secret is hidden from you, but your wisdom and your understanding or by your wisdom and your understanding, you've made wealth for yourself and have gathered gold and silver into your treasuries. In other words, why is it that the Prince of Tyre feels like divinity? He says, just look at what I've built. Look at my empire. Look at the power and the influence I have. Look at how I can turn, you know, the geopolitical scales with the tip of my finger. 
He says, I am the one who demands to be dealt with. I am the one who controls things. And then he says, and I got here because I'm the smartest man on the block. And he says, that's right. Your wisdom led to all of this wealth. But remember, in the Bible, there are two types of wisdom. There is the wisdom of this world, and then there's the wisdom of God. There's an ability to be clever uh, that gets what you want. James says there's a type of wisdom that is not from above, but is actually from below. And he says it's really easy to pick up on because it involves jealousy and it involves selfish ambition and it involves taking advantage of others. You might be smart enough to recognize that somebody's bad news is an opportunity to make a bundle of money. But that's not godly wisdom. And so here, he's inflated, he's full of pride because of all these wealth, and he is effectively not just his own God, but sees himself as a God among men, and he's wrong. And again, this is the scary thing about wealth. It's not merely that we can mistake wealth as an idol for being God, but when we become wealthy, we start to divinize ourselves. We start to think of ourselves as God. We start to think of ourselves as being above the law, that the rules don't apply to us, to all these things. And that's what was going on here. And so he says, uh, verse 6, because you make your heart like the heart of a God, therefore, behold, I'll bring foreigners upon you, the most ruthless of nations, and they shall draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. They shall thrust you down in the pit and you shall die the death of the slain in the heart of the seas. Will you still say I am a God in the presence of those who kill you? Do you hear the poignancy in that? Will you still say I am a God in the presence of those who kill you? Though you were but a man and no God in the hands of those who slay you, you shall die the death of the uncircumcised by the hand of foreigners, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. And so he lays it out once, and he lays it out in this picture of being exalted because of wealth, exalted because of his own wisdom, and that pride leads to self-divination, and that is his undoing because he is not God, and he has forgotten the one great truth. Now what happens next is literally the same thing all over again in completely different language. Notice verse 11, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God. Look again at verse 1, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, Thus says the Lord God. And here it's not the prince, but the king. Now those could be synonymous terms. Uh, it's very possible that they're operating in that way. Um, but when it walks through here, we're going to see wisdom, beauty, and riches but it's so different. Look at verse, um, verse 12 continues. You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardis, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper. Okay, so whereas the prince of Tyre sat in the midst of the seas, here the king of Tyre, we find him in the garden of Eden. Right? Whereas the prince of Tyre uh, was, you know, had a storeroom full of gold and precious jewels, here it's the adornment of the king of Tyre. In fact, notice 
every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, diamond, barrel, onyx, jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle. And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. Okay, that's another thing. The king, uh, the prince here, he's raised up. He builds his wealth. Um, but this is endowed from, and it doesn't even say birth. It says from creation. And then notice the kicker here in verse 14. You were an anointed guardian cherub. Now, if you recognize that word cherub, the cherubim we've encountered in Ezekiel, they're these winged angelic beings who live not on earth, but in you know, the heavenly realities. There are two possibilities here. One is that basically Ezekiel is saying, you made the same mistake you have lived out again the same story as the story we're reading here. I told you earlier that there is a wisdom from above and there is a wisdom from below. And basically, Ezekiel here is saying, you bought into the same lie of another. You've personified or perpetuated the same lie. The other opportunity, the other possibility is he's looking behind the prince of Tyre and he's seeing this spiritual power or principality or spiritual force of darkness that's actually functioning in our world invisibly through his influence. And I'm actually very attracted to that idea. And the primary reason is because we see the same thing in Ezekiel's contemporary Daniel. Daniel talks about the prince of Persia. And uh, when it does so, uh, the angel who's come to Daniel, I believe it's Gabriel, says, I've been trying to get to you for a while, but the prince of Persia resisted me. Now, let's be honest here. There's not royalty in, in Persia's palace who's, you know, put out a boycott against angelic visits. He's talking about some sort of a spiritual entity behind the scenes. He sees what's happening in our earth, even between the nations, as being a playing out of a spiritual reality that's only represented by those nations. It seems to be the same here. Seems to be the same thing Isaiah says in Isaiah 14, where he's talking about the king of Babylon, and then suddenly he says, your name was Lucifer, the very star of the morning. What I would suggest to you here is we are seeing where it is that the serpent in Genesis 3, this tempter, comes from. And we see that he's created and he's beautiful, and he's wise, just like it says in Genesis, the most uh, you know, crafty or wise of all the animals. And then notice what happens here. He says, you were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in all your ways from the day you were created. Do you think that could apply to the prince of Tyre? You were blameless from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found of you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and, your, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God. I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stone of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. So I brought fire out from your midst. It consumed you, and I turned you into ashes on the earth. In the sight of all who saw you, all who you know among the peoples are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever. 
If I'm right, and this is speaking of, you know, the demonic reality, then it traces the story from Genesis all the way to the end in Revelation, right? When, when Satan and the Antichrist, the beast and the prophet of the beast are all cast into the lake of fire, right? This is the idea of this story. But what's most important for us tonight is the parallel between these two things. It was the gifts of God that created the Prince of Tyre. Wealth and a sharp mind and the beauty of the kingdom, it was, it was really God-given beauty and here the Prince of Tyre uses it to exalt himself. But that's what Satan was. Satan's temptation to Adam and Eve, you can be like God, was his own desire and his own ambition. And so the point is here that there is, whether this is um, seeing these two things as being um, related in the timeline or just related in type. And I would suggest it's pretty much both, right? There's an interweaving of these things. That's why Jesus critiques those around him as being the children of the devil, right? The, his progency, there's, uh, there's a family resemblance there. All of these ideas come to play. Um, but also it kind of pulls the curtain back for uh, uniquely and, and shows us into a realm beyond our own. And so we see here that the economy of Tyre and its downfall uh, is spiritual in its nature. It's cosmic in its nature. It's part of this broader battle. And that's not just true in the international you know, politics of our earth. Uh, it's true in the life of Job. Job goes through all of this suffering and wrestles with everything bad in his life, but it is really, you know, a battle between good and evil in the most spiritual and true sense. It has this unseen component. And so here this is laid out, but again, it's a reminder that the temptation of Tyre, the beauty and the wisdom of Tyre, the heart of Tyre, its origin is demonic because it forgets the one great truth that God is God and we are not. The chapter closes here by going to Sidon and that's kind of strange because it spends all this time on Tyre and then we get another simple one like we had of Edom uh, or Moab or these types of places. Um, but I think there's a reason why it's placed here. Very few of these have timestamps, Tyre being the only exception. So they're clearly organized and put here, not because of the order that they happened in, but for other reasons. And in this case, this oracle that was probably spoken by Ezekiel at some point is written for us here to close out what we've read so far. And I'll show you what I mean. Verse 20, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, set your face towards Sidon and prophesy against her and say, thus says the Lord God, behold, I'm against you, O Sion. Uh, Sidon and I will manifest my glory in your midst and they shall know that I am the Lord when I execute judgments in her and manifest my holiness in her. For I will send pestilence into her and blood in her streets and the slain shall fall in her midst by the sword that's against her on every side. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Okay, And so again it re returns just to this very simple pattern. But notice verse 24. And for the house of Israel... There shall no more be a briar to pick or a thorn to hurt them among all their neighbors who they've treated with contempt. Then they will know that I am the Lord God. I would say that's why this oracle closes it out. 
because it gives the conclusion of this whole matter that God is not just going to bring judgment on Israel, but simultaneously on, on their enemies uh, and these types of things. In fact, notice here, verse 25, thus says the Lord God, when I gather the house of Israel from the peoples among whom they are scattered, this is the first time he addresses Israel proper and the first thing he says is, don't forget that I'm going to return you to the land. Don't forget all the places that I've sent you in judgment I'm going to draw you back from. And notice here, and manifest my holiness in them in the sight of the nations. Then they shall dwell in their own land that I gave to my servant Jacob. And they shall dwell securely in it. And they shall build houses and plant vineyards. And they shall dwell securely when I execute judgments upon all their neighbors who have treated them with contempt. Then they will know that I am the Lord their God. And so like I said, this judgment is actually a judgment of hope because it's a judgment on those uh, who persecuted um, who persecuted Israel. Uh, and it's going to be in the midst of this, while this judgment is going on, that God is gathering together a people, redeeming them, securing them, fulfilling his plans for them. And so, again, we are in new territory in the book of Ezekiel, and we'll pick up and look at some more oracles against nation next, next week. Let's stop here and pray. Father, it's hard to wrap a head or, our head around just how different you are than us, Lord. Oftentimes, we can see ju justice done, and yet we're still full of wrath, and we tend to spill in, uh, into overreactions uh, and actually piling sin upon our so-called justice. And yet the way you work with Israel is so faithful that as soon as judgment has come, you're there in the midst of the rubble, picking up the pieces and saying, all right, let's head home. Let's rebuild. I can't wait to show you the plans that I have for you. And Lord, that reality, even though it comes with the threat of judgment, even though it comes um, with the high demands of your goodness and your holiness, is so much better than the deceitful ways that we run from you, than when we chase the tales of idols, Lord, or when we um, lust after the wealth of Tyre. Lord, even in your discipline, we see your kindness. Even in your judgment, we come to know the God who loves. I pray, Lord, that we would just learn these lessons and not have to learn them through practice, Lord but know them up front and stay close and stick close to the only one who is faithful, the only one who is true, the only one whose nature is light and in whom there is no darkness, the only one who can say of himself, I am love. And I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't fall for the deception of demonic wisdom that takes the things you have given us, that claims them as our own, that conquers in our own name, and then sets ourselves up on the throne of the universe and makes ourselves the center. Instead, Lord, we want to elevate you tonight. We want to place you on that throne. We want to proclaim that Jesus is Lord and that that's the best news in the world. Thank you for all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.